All right, so let's just start our time in prayer. We're going to be talking about Jesus and how he teaches us to be a leader. Jesus, we just thank you on this Father's Day. Um, many of us, the first leader that we saw was our father, or the first lack of a leader that we experienced was our father. And uh, whether we've seen good leaders or bad leaders, we wish to be the best leader that we can, and so we look to Jesus as an example. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I just mentioned, today is Father's Day. Um, and for that reason, I was uh, flipping through some of the Bible studies that I've done on campus and, and some notes that I had. And uh, we had done a really great study on the, the leadership principles of Jesus. And I thought this really fits for Father's Day. Uh, because in scriptures, men are called the head of the home. They're called to be leaders. They're called to, um, to lead their families. Uh, and we're going to talk a bit more about what that exactly means. That's been a misunderstood concept for many years. Um, but as I thought more about that, I thought, you know, it's this talk about leadership and this idea of fathers, although they're very related, don't exactly fit. Uh, and so I felt like, uh, although it is Father's Day, and I want to say uh, God bless you to all the fathers, and we appreciate you, and I appreciate myself. I guess I'm a father too. Um, but we're going to leave that aside and we're going to leave all the complexity with that and all of, um, you know, it, it, it's a large emotional concept to talk about gender and fathers and all that stuff. But we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a leader? Because no matter who we are, no matter what our role, no matter what our age, we are all a leader in one way or another. And if we're not a leader today, we're going to be a leader at some point. And we have all been led by somebody, um, we've all been hurt by a leader at some point in our lives. And we've all been helped by a leader at some point in our lives. And as we look forward to the future uh, and how we can lead, we want to be the type of leader that helps and lifts people up and that doesn't hurt people. And so the best, the, the best example I can think of, of who to be, who to look to for a leadership is Jesus. So let's have a look at how Jesus who in only three years of ministry, he was only really active on the scene for three years, believe it or not. And then he died, never leaving his home country, never writing a book, but leaving his 12 disciples. One of them rejected him, Judas Iscariot, so 11. And those 11 people that he led for those three years changed absolutely the face of the world. Where today I think it's something like a third of the world's population calls himself Christian. Billions of people. So how did he do it? How did he change the world in such a short time just through leading this small band of people? So I've got three categories here, and it starts in secret. Jesus was a secret warrior. Jesus, during the formative years of his life, and this is a, a strange thing. As I, as I share uh, the Christian faith with people that, that uh, some of them don't know it or don't know it very well, um, they're often asking, well, what was Jesus' childhood like? What happened when he was young? And we know, of course, you know, his birth is, we have plenty of information about his birth, his virgin birth, and we celebrate that every Christmas. Uh, there's this little anecdote about when he was a, a, maybe a young teenager or a child, we're not exactly sure the age, at least I'm not exactly sure the age, somebody probably knows. Uh, but at, at some point he went to the temple and his, his parents lost him, and there's a story about that. Um, but for the rest of 
his childhood, we have nothing. It's a big blank. It's a big empty, um, big empty time. It's such a frustrating silence that Christians in the past have been tempted to theorize. And there's all these books written 200 to 300, even 400 years after the death of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus, that theorize about what Jesus might have done. And there's theories all about him going down to Egypt. Well, he did go to Egypt as a young child, but perhaps he voyaged further north. Perhaps he went all the way to England and, and various other places. Um, but historians have rejected this extra-biblical uh, collection of books as not really contributing anything to the life of Jesus because the four Gospels are the only Gospels, the only books written about Jesus that actually came from within 50 years of his death. This is the only historically reliable source that we have is contained within the Bible. And it's just silent about the most turbulent, most difficult years in most of our lives. Most of us when we're young, when we're teenagers, that's, that's a really hard time. What we do have is that Jesus, as a young man, was baptized by, uh, or not as a young man, when he was beginning his ministry at 30, uh, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And he heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit led him out into the desert. For what? To be tempted. And this is where it begins for Jesus. In an obscure childhood, where he was likely working as a carpenter, and then off in the wilderness where nobody knew him, nobody knew what he was doing, nobody knew what was happening. He had 40 days of fasting, after which he was tempted. And the temptation of Jesus, we could you know, talk about this, we, there could probably be a sermon series on it, there could be, we could talk about this for hours, there's so much depth here. But basically, Satan comes to him and tempts him in three different ways. First of all, he says, if you are the son of man, then turn these stones into bread so that you can eat. Jesus was hungry after not eating for 40 days. I actually knew somebody, by the way, who had fasted for 40 days. It's possible. Your body can handle it, but afterwards you get kind of hungry. Um, but Jesus resisted that temptation and said, uh, Rather, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The second temptation, Satan took him up on a high place. On, on the pinnacle of the temple, where there's a whole bunch of people down below, kind of the center of their culture and their religion, the Jewish people at the time. And he said, throw yourself down from this temple, because it's written that, uh, the son of the, that God will hold you up and you will not strike your foot against a stone. Basically telling him, do something incredible and miraculous so that people will notice you. Uh, but Jesus said, rather it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, the devil, in some miraculous way, showed him all the nations of the earth. And he said, all this will be yours. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, "Rather it is, or get behind me, Satan. Rather it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. So these three temptations, physical, psychological, and what I'm calling vocational. First of all, Jesus was tempted physically. He had a, a physical body. God became man and dwelt among us. This is the idea of the virgin birth, that God became a man to live among us. So that in, in Hebrews it's written that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize, but one that was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. God took on a human body, and this is what we, it's hard for us to understand, but it's called the incarnation, and he lived a life with us, and in that way, Jesus, although he is fully God, he is also fully man, and he understands what it's like 
to live this life, to have these temptations, even to something as basic as being hungry. Jesus understands. And yet he, he fought with that temptation and he knew in that situation it was, it was wrong to use his, his divine powers to turn these rocks into bread. And he, he, he went past that temptation. He, he was victorious in the temptation of physical desires. And that is really where it begins for a leader. In the secret place, in a hidden place, before you're big, before you're known, finding victory over your own personal demons, we could say, physical desires. The second temptation, Jesus was tempted, uh, we could say psychologically, this temptation to throw himself down from the temple and expect God to save him, do something huge, something bombastic, something that everybody will notice and everybody will say, whoa, good job, Jesus, yay, Jesus. And uh, again, Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so that idea of having people applaud for him, having people saying, good job, having people saying, well done, that, that, that must have drawn him in some way, as it would draw us. We would love to have people you know, say that we did a great job. We're all motivated by pride to some degree. And yet there again, Jesus said, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a way that God is, is moving here, and this isn't the way to do it. And finally, this vocational temptation that Jesus knew that the reason he was here on earth was to die for the human race and ultimately to save the human race and so that the human race would, through Jesus, have access back to God. But Jesus said no to having the right thing in the wrong way. For Jesus, the ends did not justify the means. He said, I'm going to have God's result in God's way in God's time. And I'm going to be patient for that. And these really, if we think about it, physical, psychological, and vocational temptations, this is what destroys leaders. This is where leaders accomplish great things and build great empires. And then why do they fall? Physical temptation, pride, or trying to do the right thing but in the wrong way, in the wrong time scale. And the thing that, where this begins for Jesus is Jesus was a secret warrior where he fought with his temptations. He found victory over the enemy when nobody else was watching, when nobody else was seeing, when nobody was applauding, when nobody was encouraging him, cheering him on. And that became the foundation and the bedrock for everything he did after. It's been said that you are who you are. You are what you do when you think nobody is watching. You are what you do when you think nobody is watching. And Jesus, in the secret place, um, found victory from these temptations. The second thing that we can see in his private life is that he continually came back to prayer. He modeled throughout his life, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And Luke 5.16 says that the disciples often found him off somewhere praying. And that Jesus was continually coming back to his Father and finding peace and finding his rest with his communication with the Father and finding his direction with, um, through prayer and through study of the Word. Thirdly, we can see that Jesus was in action. And the, the Gospel of Mark really emphasizes this. That that's what the writer of the Gospel of Mark really wanted to bring out, is just the action of Jesus, that he is always going, he is always doing, he is always active. 
uh, the, go- the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes, emphasizes more his speech and, and the things that he said. But the Gospel of Mark is very focused on the things that he did and where he's going. You know, Jesus wasn't the sort of leader that anybody had to wake up in the morning and say, come on, like, let's go. What's going on? Uh, don't sleep in. Um, come to work uh, this morning. Jesus didn't need anybody to wake him up because he was already awake. And the disciples would wake up and say, where's Jesus? Oh, he's off somewhere praying and now we're going to another town. Okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. Jesus, he had motion. He was doing things. He was active. And yet, I wouldn't characterize him as driven. A lot of leaders, a lot of times as leaders, we can be drawn towards drivenness because we get so consumed by our destination and our goal and our need to accomplish things, we can just become go, 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 go. But you know, Jesus knew the importance of rest. At one point in Matthew 8, 24, it was so busy for Jesus and the disciples that they didn't even have time to eat. And Jesus said, let's get away to a quiet place and rest. As well, at a different time, um, there was a big storm. They were going across uh, the lake uh, of Galilee in a boat, and Jesus was sleeping. He said, there's nothing for me to do here. You guys got the boat thing figured out. I'm just going to take a nap over here until you need me. Uh, And certainly they did wake him up because they needed him. But Jesus knew when to take rest, but he also knew when to be active. So that's Jesus as a secret warrior, the first category. The second category is Jesus as a leader of people. I had a mentor uh, in my teen years, one of many, who... uh, said to me one time, Josiah, how do you know that you're a real leader? And he had kind of this smile on his face as though he was going to share some great pearl of wisdom. And so I thought really hard and probably answered a few things. I forget what I said. But finally I said, I give up. What do you want to say? And he said, people follow you. And I thought, well, that's not all that wise. Come on. I thought you, I thought you were going to do better than that. But Actually, as I thought more about what it means to be a leader, and as I have been a leader, sometimes a good leader, sometimes not such a good leader, um, I have realized that this is true. A true leader is somebody that people follow. And it was the, um, I shouldn't do extra quotations on the fly, but Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of Britain, is that correct? Yeah. And she said that um, having authorities, no, never mind, I'm not going to go to that quote for a second. Rewind, delete, I won't do that. Okay, moving on. Um, having, uh, being a leader is people follow you. And Jesus was somebody who, um, people followed him. He was able to move through the mass of humanity. And behind him, people like awake following a boat would be following him as he's moving forwards. So how did he do this? And I have a few points here for how Jesus led people. First and foremost, and this is what we're going to keep coming back to over and over for this section, Jesus as a leader of people. Jesus knew his mission. Jesus, it says in Luke 9.51, and then repeats it numerous times, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what his future was, knowing what he had to do, knowing he had to die for the human race. He set his face towards Jerusalem and said, this is where I need to go. This is what I need to do. Jesus knew that he came to earth to train these disciples, to give them the message, but also to die for the human race because there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we may be saved except through Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that we could not do it. We can't pay for our own sins. And so God, through Jesus, paid for our sins so that we can have reconciliation with God. And Jesus knew this mission. He knew it. 
And so this is why at one point his chief disciple, Peter, took him aside as, he, as Jesus was explaining that he was going to die, have to die, as he told them at numerous times throughout, um, throughout his ministry. Peter took him aside and said, look, you can't do this. You can't do this. And it even says that, that Peter started um, speaking harshly with Jesus and saying, look, you can't do this. You can't die. We need you. Uh, you need to be our leader. You need to lead a revolt against the Romans. We don't know exactly what all Peter was saying, but he was saying, you can't do this. And Jesus said to Peter, his friend, the leader of, his, of the rest of the disciples, he said, perhaps the harshest words that anybody says to anybody else in scriptures, get behind me, Satan. Because you are not setting your mind on things above, but on things of, of the, this world. Jesus was able to put somebody in his place when it wasn't fitting with the vision. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. And what you're saying doesn't fit with that. And so we need to move those ideas here and we're going to move forward. And this is a really good counterexample of this is Saul from the Old Testament. Saul, one of the kings of Israel, that at, he started off well. He was a, a well-built guy. He was a strong warrior. Um, but throughout, at, at multiple times throughout his life, you read the book of Saul in uh, 1 Samuel. At numerous times throughout his life, he made major critical errors that ultimately led to God saying, you will no longer be king in replacing him. And at each time, what Saul says, the reason for his decision was, I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. And we can be like this as leaders. We can be leading people, but we're looking around saying, what do you guys think we should do? Are you guys cool with this? Are you guys okay with this? And, and if we're afraid of the people that we're leading, we're not going to be able to lead them to where they need to go. And Jesus was able to say, this is our mission. He wasn't influenced by the peer pressure. And he was able to put people in their place to say, this is where we're going. We're moving forwards. We're accomplishing this. Because this is what uh, I have been put on earth to do. Furthermore, he was even able to get angry. We usually have this idea of Jesus as, you know, let the little children come to me. You know, there's often pictures of Jesus holding a lamb uh, with children on his knee. And, you know, somebody that you'd want to have over to your home and, and, and play with, with your kids and just a nice kind of a guy. But Jesus was also able to get angry. Um, specifically, when Jesus cleansed the temple. And uh, many of us know this story that Jesus at a certain point in his life came to the temple and he saw it just filled with money changers and uh, people selling animals. And if we don't know the context, it can be really strange why Jesus did what he did because he came, he saw, he left, he came back the next day with a whip that he had made. He, he made a, a whip out of three cords woven together and he started running around yelling and I'm not sure what exactly all he did but he drove the animals out of the temple. He overturned all the money, the tables of the money uh, changers. And he stopped business in that marketplace for one day and made a huge ruckus doing it. He was able to get angry and violent for a just cause. Now, the reason that he did that, if you understand the context, the, in the Old Testament, God was giving us a picture of salvation. He was giving his people a very clear idea that God is holy and that we are sinful. And what he was trying to do is demonstrate that for the, sins, uh, for the sins that you have done, you have sinned, you have broken God's covenant, you have hurt yourself, you have hurt other people, there needs to be a sacrifice. 
Well, you can't pay that sacrifice because ultimately this, the only sacrifice that atones is death. And so God said, look, you're farmers. Take one of your animals, kill it, and through that blood, and there's all these ceremonies and rituals and different things, through that blood you'll be forgiven for your sin. The sins will cover over, or the blood will cover over your sins. Now, this system, of course, was costly, and it was supposed to be costly. People were supposed to understand that sin is a big deal, that sin hurts, that sin costs us. But God also wanted to take care of the poor people. And he wanted to say, look, if you're too poor to own a sheep or a, a cow, that, doesn't, that shouldn't exclude you from having forgiveness. And so there was a provision in the law, you could take a sparrow. And the word sparrow in Hebrew is just a generic word for a small bird. So like, it could be a robin, it could be a nuthatch, it could be whatever. It just go in the forest, catch a little bird, and that's your, your sacrifice. And that's something that, I mean, you or I would have a hard time catching a bird. But in that time, people wouldn't know how to catch a little bird, or else they could ask a child to catch a bird for them and pay them a few pennies. And so this was a way that even the poor people can have forgiveness. Even the poor people can have access to God. Because Jesus said, My Father's house is to be a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the way that they did it, the way that it became a den of thieves is that these very religious, very holy, very serious people said, well, you know, what if God, what if somebody offers to God a sacrifice that isn't perfect? And so they said, we really ought to have quality control on the animals. And the more that they had quality control on the animals, the more they realized, you know, we ought to just have our own animals that we have already approved, and they'll be here in cages, and then you guys come, and then you buy them from us, and then you can sacrifice that. And as the years went on, it became, well, you know what, your money is kind of filthy and dirty. I mean, it's been out there, who knows who's touched it, who knows who's handled it. You should probably buy our holy money so that you can buy our holy animals so that you can then sacrifice it to atone for your sins. This is what religious, religion does, unfortunately. And Jesus, as he came, was furious. This is something else, uh, not in the notes, but it just reminds me that Jesus continually was railing against the hypocrisy that he saw within the religion. And all of the words that he spoke against religion in his day apply to me, apply to us. And these are words that we need to, we need to continually come back and say, am I just doing my religion so that other people approve of me? Or am I focusing on the heart? Because it's God, Jesus said uh, that man looks at the externals, but God looks at the heart. And that's what, the religion, that's what counts. And Jesus said, you guys are keeping the poor people away, away with how you are focusing on external religion. God cares about the heart. So with all that I've said, you might get this idea of a really rebellious, really angry, really strong charisma sort of a person. But of course, Jesus also knew how to take orders from his, his superiors. Jesus was submitted to the authority of the Father. He was able to say, not my will, but thy will be done to his Father. And he was able to say to his disciples, I don't call you slaves or servants, but I call you friends because everything I'm about to do, I'm telling you. So Jesus was able to be in communion with those above him, those below him. Uh, and he wasn't just out there um, like a rebel without a cause. He knew what his mission was. So all that I've said so far, um, I think what I've, I've painted for us is a good picture of what it means to be a leader. And I think if we look throughout history at some of the great leaders throughout, down through the years, 
most of the leaders, if you think of anybody from um, you know, Gandhi all the way to Alexander the Great, political leaders or cultural leaders, they're all going to have a lot of these attributes of having dealt with things personally and then being able to move out, knowing what their mission is, staying on task, being focused. Um, but the main thing that Jesus contributed, not just to the idea of leadership, but to Western culture in general and to the world is this idea of servant leadership. Jesus was a secret warrior. Jesus was a warrior, of, uh, a leader of people, but he was a servant leader. And I, if I can, I'd like to read with us, with you, Matthew 20, 28. Matthew 20, 28. So I'll just back up and give us a little bit of context. There was this dispute happening within his disciples as they were trying to jostle for power and figure out who was more important than the others. And two that were fairly important, as the hierarchy seemed to go, wanted to take the top spot and bump Peter off his pedestal. And uh, they tried something, it didn't work out. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers in verse 24. But Jesus called to himself called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, that's the non-Christians or people that aren't following the religion, you know that the, those other people lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not to be this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And what Jesus explains here is, look, everything that I've just said, when we see a leader like this, that's leading people, that's influencing the world, usually what they're following is what Jesus just said here. Their great men exercise authority over the less, and they lord it over them and say, look, I'm the boss, I'm in charge. You all need to listen to me, and this is where we're going to go, and this is what we're going to accomplish. And you listen to me, and if, if you disobey my authority, there's going to be consequences. And everything orbits around the leader, and the leader says, you need to serve me. The reason that you are in this company, the reason you are in this family, the reason you are in this situation is to serve me. And my needs come first, and your needs come second, because I am in charge and you're not. And Jesus flips this on its head. And we need to stop to realize how fundamental this is to flip the concept of leadership on its head to say, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great shall become your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall become your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus himself modeled this, of course, for dying for our sins, but also in the Last Supper, which uh, many of us, if you think of the Last Supper, you think right away of the painting by Michelangelo or Raphael or one of the Ninja Turtles. Um, ah, kids from the 90s laugh. Um, anyways, in the Last Supper, uh, Jesus, as they're all sitting around uh, the table, it's not in John 11. Yeah, 
John 13. Um, and Jesus takes off his outer garment, he wraps a towel around himself, and he goes one by one to his disciples and he washes their feet. And to enter into the cultural significance of this situation, these are people wearing sandals, walking down the street, and their feet are dirty. Um, potentially walking in, you know, feces and whatever else. Their, their feet are dirty and they needed to be washed for personal hygiene to keep them healthy. Um, and so usually you'd wash your own feet. You wouldn't ask somebody to wash your feet. And there were even laws, um, like Jews weren't supposed to ask their servants to wash their feet because it was too offensive. If it was a fellow Jew, to ask another Jew to wash your feet, it's like it's too low, it's too, um, too insulting. Even a rabbi, uh, and the rabbis at that, at that time had, um, like their, their disciples would just do everything that they said and, and very follow them very specifically and just imitate everything they did. But even a rabbi could not tell his disciples to wash his feet. There was strict rules about that because it was so disgusting. And so in a shame-based culture, something that we don't really get because we don't, we don't have a shame-based culture. But in shame-based cultures, when somebody does something really embarrassing, they, they lose points on the social ladder. And it would be inappropriate to put somebody all the way down there to do that. But Jesus gets down and he washes feet. He washes their feet. And Peter resists, and he says, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. And so then Peter let him. And then Jesus explains, he says, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this for me, just, just everything right here that I'm trying to say. Because Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord. I'm the teacher, the, the guy that has the ideas, the guy that has, that's teaching you how to think, that has the worldview. Um, you're following my ideas. I'm the teacher, Jesus is saying. And you call me Lord, the boss, the big guy, the, the buck stops here, the, the person in charge, the person that's telling us what to do. And he says, and you are right, for so I am. So he accepts that. He, he carries that on himself to say, Jesus says, I am the teacher and Lord. You're right. In this situation, I'm the boss. But what's the next step? If I then, your Lord and your teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If the boss man, if God himself made flesh, washes the feet of his disciples, and by the way, Judas Iscariot was there, and Jesus even washed his feet. And if Jesus is going to wash, if the Lord of the universe is going to wash the feet of the man that was going to betray him, then we need to be able to serve those that we are leading. And this is what Jesus modeled for us. Servant leadership. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To be a leader in the style of Jesus is the first one to have responsibility. For Jesus, leadership is responsibility. He's the one in charge. He's the teacher. He's the Lord. Uh, he's the one responsible. But that also means he's the first one to serve. He's caring for the people under him. He he's, looks at them like, like sheep and he's trying to be their shepherd to care for them and to tend for them and to protect them. And he's loving them and laying his life out for them. So how can we grow towards this? This is a tremendously positive thing. There's two ways to motivate people, either negatively or positively. Either you can hit them with a stick or you can tempt them with a carrot. And Jesus is, is our, our, our motivation this is good. We want to be more like Jesus. How can we grow towards Jesus? 
I think the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, are we being afraid to lead? Our culture has a very confused idea of what leadership is. And for that reason, and, and we're reacting against the sins of, of previous generations in some cases. And in our generation, we're afraid, honestly, to lead. And often leaders will kind of be like, well, what do you think? And, and are you sure? Is everybody sure that this is where we need to go? And kind of almost apologizing for, for being in a leadership position. But if you've been called to lead, then lead. And Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. So if God has put you in a specific position of leadership in some way or another, then do it. Then be a leader. And uh, the book of Joshua, um, Moses was a very strong leader for a very long time. And then he dies and he had raised up Joshua. And Joshua all of a sudden has something like three million people to lead. And the thing that God tells him over and over throughout the beginning of Joshua is, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. And some of you need to hear this from scriptures. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. If God has called you to be a leader, then be a leader. Some of us need to ask, are we being a leader as Jesus was? Maybe, maybe for some of us, leadership comes naturally. Maybe for some of us, people just follow us as no matter what we do. And maybe for some of us, it's easy to be in authority, but it's hard to, to care and to be compassionate about people. Are we leading as Jesus did, serving those who are under us, caring for them, taking, on their responsi taking responsibility for them, serving them, loving them? And if you look at that, you think, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Like, what's in that for me? Like, what's the motivation to become a leader if it means pouring myself out like this? But Jesus said, those who, those who try to protect their lives will lose it, but those who lay down their lives will find it. And what I have found is that leaders like this, that pour themselves out, that care for people, there is such a thirst and a hunger for a leader that cares. Amen? And when you find a leader that really cares, it can change your life. When you think about a, a school teacher that cares, I know there's a lot of school teachers in this room, but I can think right now of some school teachers that absolutely made a huge difference in my life because they were in charge, they kept the class in order, but they cared. And I can still tell you their names to this day. Um, and finally, how's the secret battle going? Are we finding victory from those secret demons, those secret temptations, those secret sins. 1 Timothy 5.24 says, The sins of some people go up before them, and everybody can see them. The sins of others follow behind them, and they're not seen until after. But scriptures also assure us that nothing will be hidden. All will be revealed. And um, we have this terrible reminder that just keeps coming in the news every couple months, every couple years, of another leader that has fallen, another pastor, another priest that has fallen. And we can look at that and judge others, but can we look at that and look at ourselves and say, I need to make sure I'm not the next one. I need to make sure that I am finding victory over my personal battles and demons so that when I lead, no matter what I accomplish, that won't all be taken away from me one day because of the sins um, that happened in secret. And so this is where I want to leave it. I want to leave it with us thinking about how we can find victory over the sins um, that perhaps nobody else knows about. 
And of course, this means reaching out sometimes. This means finding somebody in private that you know is a safe person and sharing with them what's going on and saying, has anything helped for this? What do you know? Can you recommend a book or a counselor? And this requires self-discipline and this requires a fight. But it also requires grace. It requires grace. And through the death of Jesus, what we have is grace. And what we have is the ability to say, um, Father, I have sinned. Please forgive me for my sins. And from that point on, forgive me for my sins because of the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus and the, and the payment that that, caught, that, that, had, that has won covers our sins. So that from that point on, we are free. We are free from our past. We are free from our sins. Every day is a new day in Christ when we come to him in repentance. And so I'd just like to end here with a prayer. And um, this is how we become Christians, is to pray for forgiveness. It's also, it's our daily food. It's our daily coming back. It's our daily life to continually be repenting and asking for forgiveness. And in this is life. So Jesus, I just come to you knowing that um, you know what it's like You've been here. You were, su you were tempted. You suffered. Um, the things that, that uh, trouble me, that maybe I don't want to tell to others, I can tell you because you've had the same thing. You've been tempted too. And you know what the sins are. And I just pray that you would forgive that. I know that I should pay, that I should have some way of paying you back for this, of earning my righteousness, but I can't do that. And I recognize that the only one that can pay that is your death. And so I just accept your death over my sin. And I pray, Father, that when you look at me, when you look at my sin, you would look to Jesus for the payment for that. And I just accept that forgiveness from you. And right now, I just pray that you would give me the ability to follow in your steps, to be the leader that I should be, to be the man that I should be, to be the father that I should be. And I pray, Lord, that I can make some difference in this world because Jesus has made a difference in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.